with the Gospel of our Saviour Christ according to John, the first chapter, beginning at the first verse. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. in the lives of holy people 
And because he's a great storyteller, some episodes have become famous. And tonight I want to introduce you to two of them, starting with the Northumbrian Christian poet Cadian, who did not compose a single line until quite late in his life. Cadian was a cowherd by trade who had no education, and he always avoided the rounds of singing that followed celebration meals. I can sympathize with that. I too am not a singer. <laughs> Cadian felt it was just better that his companions didn't find out about this. Anyway, one night, he had gone home from a party of that kind, and suddenly he found a figure standing before him and asking him to sing. He made his excuses. The figure insisted that he should sing of creation, and suddenly and spontaneously he began. Now we must honor the guardian of heaven, the might of the architect and his purpose, the work of the father of glory, as he, the eternal light, and the eternal Lord, established the beginning of wonders. The song went on. Bede records that he sang about the creation of the world, the origin of the human race, and the whole history of Genesis, of the departure of Israel from Egypt, and the entry into the promised land, of many other of the stories taken from the sacred scriptures, of the incarnation, passion, and resurrection of the Lord, of his ascension into heaven, to heaven, of the coming of the Holy Spirit and the teaching of the apostles, he also made songs about the terrors of the future judgment, the horrors of the pains of hell, and the joys of the heavenly kingdom. The author of the book about Bede describes this as his little creed, and if you examine it item by item, everything you hold to be essential is there. Yet we don't often think of confessions of faith originating in worship and praise, empowered and released by the Spirit. I wonder what difference it would make if we did. The second story concerns the saintly abbot Cuthbert of Lindisfarne. He was formed according to the demanding Irish monastic rule that had found its way southwards from Iona. It was well known to the monks of the community that Cuthbert went somewhere to pray through the hours of darkness. And a young, a young monk, consumed with curiosity, stealthily followed him one night. Cuthbert waded into the water of the North Sea up to his armpits. Now, those of you who've been around those parts, the North Sea is never other than very, very cold. Just imagine that for a moment. There he stood for hours, absorbed in prayer, before returning to the shore, where he fell to his knees and started to pray again. And then something very astonishing happened. In Bede's words, two quadrupeds called otters came up from the sea, and lying down before him on the sand, they breathed upon his feet and wiped them with their hair after which, having received his blessing, they returned to their native element. Cuthbert himself returned home in time to join in the accustomed hymns with the other brethren. Now, stricken with guilt, the young monk confessed his spying activities to Cuthbert, who readily forgave him. But Cuthbert made him promise to tell no one what he had seen as long as he himself was still alive. After Cuthbert's death, Bede reports, the monk took care to tell it to as many persons as he was able. The otters, it seems to me, become a part of the saints' prayers, and part of the sensory environment that is made out of land and water, cold and warmth, night and morning, flesh and blood and fur. It's hard to believe that the narrator didn't have the woman who washed and anointed Jesus' feet in mind. 
or even Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And why should otters, after all, not be capable of ministry within the world they share with other creatures? Their gentle and affectionate service is not taken for granted either, because Catholic blesses them before they go back into the sea. It's a picture of relationship and spontaneity and delight. And it's a picture that is developed in our readings and psalm tonight, surely some of the loveliest poetry in world literature. So first we have the voice of wisdom describing how she was present at God's side from the beginning of creation, like an inquisitive child watching its parent. And it all starts very simply with a circle being drawn on the face of the deep. God rejoices in wisdom, and wisdom rejoices in God, and both of them delight in the human race. The psalmist marvels at the variety of creatures that can populate the earth and the sea, and even dares to imagine that God might have made the great sea creature Leviathan just for fun. Now, this wasn't lost on the 17th century poet Henry Vaughan, who, in a reworking of Psalm 104, turned <coughs> Leviathan into a cunningly spacious whale. But there is a precarious aspect to all this activity and beauty. The life of these creatures depends utterly on the God who never takes his eyes off them. When you hide your face, they are dismayed, the psalmist writes. We are held in view by the gaze of a God who makes us and loves us. We are because God is. Perhaps this is an important reminder that our behavior can sometimes cause even God to keep a certain distance. But what we are not invited to do is to conjure up a picture of a capricious and needy being who has fads and favorites. We're confronted rather by a cycle of creation and the renewal of creation, not a pattern of vindictive domination. God takes breath away and creatures die. God sends forth his spirit and they are created. In this way, God renews the face of the earth. We spend most of our time viewing all of this from the, what looks like the beginning inquiring into the origins of life. We marvel at the discoveries that reveal more about the age of the Earth and its earliest living organisms. And we have to reckon with our own quite late appearance in the story. Yet those who have proclaimed God's great act of salvation and God's new creation in the coming of Jesus tell it from the end. Jesus the Christ holds all things in himself and he is the sum of all things. He is before all things. He is the one through whom all things come to be. And he's the firstborn of the new creation. And if this seems too colossal to be absorbed in one go, yet in some extraordinary way, as the writer of the first letter of John tells a newborn Christian community, we're invited to be confident that we have seen with our eyes and touched with our hands the way of life. This is what we celebrate every time we come together to celebrate the Eucharist as we prepare to confess our faith in God who creates and saves and offers us a future, and to draw close to God in bread and wine. Let us pray. Lord of all, our breath and being come from you, yet our earthly end is dust. As you loose the bound and feed the hungry, so bring us in your mercy through the grave and gate of death to the feast of eternal life, where you reign forevermore. Thank you.